I should like to call your attention once more to the words which are to be found in the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the fourth chapter, verses 18 and 19, verses 18 and 19, in the fourth chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Now I come back again to this most important and vital statement. The scene, you remember, is set in the synagogue at Nazareth, the place where the Lord Jesus Christ had been brought up. He had already set out on his public ministry. He'd been baptized of John. The voice from heaven had spoken, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit had descended upon him in the form of a dove. He had then been led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil forty days and forty nights. And after that, we are told, he went back in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went a fame of him out throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And then he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up for to read. And there was delivered to him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, then come our two verses. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. In other words, what our Lord there said was that those statements which he had just read to them out of the 61st chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah were a perfect account and description of his ministry. They were words that had been written 800 years before of him. He is the fulfillment of these words. He is the Messiah of God. And he has come into the world in order to do the very things that are there portrayed and represented in that most interesting pictorial manner in that prophecy of Isaiah the prophet. To put it in other language, as I have been putting it for a number of Sunday evenings, our Lord here takes up these pictures of Isaiah and says, Now there you've got exactly the reason which has brought me into this world. And to put it in another form, it's this. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came into this world in order to deal with the problem of sin. That's why he came. He wouldn't have come but for that. The Son of Man, he says, is come to seek and to save that which is lost. 
He has come into the world because of the state of the world, because of the condition of men and women. And that is what brings us together this evening. We are here in a sense, I think you'll all agree, because we're all aware of problems and of difficulties. We are not here this evening uh, out of some vague general interest. That is, uh, I think you'll agree again, what differentiates a meeting such as this from many meetings which are held by the world. You can take up various subjects in the world as an interest, as a hobby, and it's quite right that we should do so. You can take up art, you can take up music, you can take up drama, you can take up these things, and, and you do so because you may like them and because you're interested in them. But nobody's come here tonight in that way. There was a time when people even came to the house of God, I think, in that way. I don't think anybody any longer does that. We are here because we've become aware of, of difficulties, of needs, of problems. We've got our personal problems. There are difficulties in one's own experience, disappointments, unhappiness, a sense of failure, a sense of frustration, a consciousness that we are unhappy, and a feeling within us that we were not meant for this, and that there must be some way out. And we may have tried many other ways, but they've led to nothing. So we are trying this. Very well. Now, our Lord meets us as we come in that way, and he says, I have come exactly because of that. That's precisely what's brought me into the world. I have come because of the problem of sin. Because of what sin is, because of what sin does, because of the consequences to which sin leads. And he says that these pictures, drawn by the prophet Isaiah, are very perfect portrayals and representations of exactly that which sin does to us. Now, we've been looking at them one by one, because, as I'm emphasizing, we have in this one statement a perfect summary of the whole message of the Son of God. He himself says so. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. This is exactly it. Now then, we've seen that sin leads to poverty. Sin, a life of sin, robs us. Robs us of our characters. Robs us of our chastity and purity. Sin always takes away. So he's come to preach the gospel to the poor. He has come to bind up the brokenhearted. Ah, sin always leads to that also. The time comes in the history of every human being when we're all brokenhearted. We may go a long way before we come to that. A day will come when we shall be brokenhearted. If not, while we are still alive, as we are dying, we'll suddenly see it. And we'll be desperate, we'll be brokenhearted. He's come to bind the brokenhearted. He has come also to set at liberty a deliverance to the captives. We've seen how sin is always slavery. And there's no need to argue further about that. Sin always leads to some sort of slavery and of serfdom. But now we're looking at this next picture. 
in which he says that he has come in connection with giving recovering of sight to the blind. Now, we began looking at this last Sunday night because in many ways this is, of all the pictures, the most important one, the pivotal one, the one which in a sense explains all the others. And I put it to you last Sunday night like this, you will remember, those who were here, that the central trouble with men is that he is spiritually blind. That is our greatest trouble. We suffer from a spiritual blindness, which means ignorance, which means a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge. The final word that the Bible has got to say about every man who is not in the right relationship to God is that he is a fool, a foolish person. Now, there are endless examples of that. There's a very famous one, the one painted by our Lord himself of that rich man who was so successful, you remember, that his barns were bursting. He couldn't put any more goods there. He'd done so well. And he's going to pull them down and bring, build larger ones. And he congratulates himself and says, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. And God said unto him, Thou fool! This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Now, that, I say, is the whole case of the Bible. That man's whole trouble is that he's ignorant. And yet, as I was pointing out, man today rather boasts of the fact that he is full of knowledge. And he doesn't believe the gospel because of his great knowledge. Well, we showed you that there are two types of knowledge. There is this human knowledge of which man is so proud. And there is this other spiritual knowledge of which he is so ignorant. And we demonstrated that the human knowledge is ultimately of no value to us. It's all right as far as it goes, but it doesn't help us when we need help most of all. It's, it's a blind sort of knowledge, a knowledge within limits. And it leaves us in this terrible position that we are ignorant and in the dark about the things that really matter. We saw further that we can never arrive at that knowledge in and of ourselves. The world has been trying to do it for centuries, and it is as much a failure tonight as it's ever been. That's why the world is as it is. If man's knowledge and understanding can put the world right, well then I ask in the name of God, why isn't the world right? It isn't through lack of trying. It isn't through lack of spending money on education. It isn't through lack of multiplying our cultural institutions. We've never done that so much as we've done it in the last hundred years. And yet look at society. Look at the state of the world. No, no. We will never arrive at it as the result of our own efforts. We need revelation. And God has given us revelation. He gives us the knowledge we need, but we saw that even when that is given to us, if we are left to ourselves, we can't see it. Man needs to be born again. He needs to have a new nature. He needs to have a new principle of understanding put within him. Christ says that he's come into the world to do that very thing, recovering of sight to the blind. Now there, it's simply stated in general. That's the general statement of this truth 
as we saw it last Sunday. Now I said that I'd come on this evening, God willing, to the particular. And this is the thing with which I want to deal. The effect of the coming of the gospel of Jesus Christ to any man is to awaken him. Awake thou that sleepest, and rise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an awakening gospel. And my dear friend, if it hasn't awakened you, you've never really heard it. The gospel is not something that just comes to us and tells us what good, what nice people we are. And pats us on the back and tells us to continue and that all is well. That's a gospel that sends people to sleep. It isn't the gospel. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ is never like that. It either comes to a man as the best good news he's ever heard, or else it annoys him intensely. And I always feel quite sure that I'm preaching the gospel when I'm told that it's annoyed somebody. It's a gospel that awakens, it disturbs, it shakes us. It tells us to rouse ourselves. It's an alarm. Sound an alarm, says the prophet. And that is exactly what the gospel does. And it does so, I say, with respect to certain matters that are absolutely vital to our well-being. And unless our eyes have been opened to certain things, well, then there is no hope for us. That is why there is a sense in which the gospel of Jesus Christ, as I've been saying, is at first something which is very unpleasant. Have you found the gospel to be unpleasant? I say again, if you haven't, you've never heard it. Has it annoyed you? Has it disturbed you? Have you sometimes wished you'd never heard it? That is always the way in which it tends to come first. Read the Gospels. That's how it came when the Son of God himself preached it. You see, you don't understand the Gospel until you understand this. There was something about him and his preaching which made people hate him. He was crucified, remember. He was despised and rejected of men. He was the one into whose face they spat. They took up stones and they threw them at him. What was it about him? Well, it was a disturbing message. There was something about him that brought the hidden things of darkness to light, and we never like that, do we? But the gospel does that. It knows that we are blind, and it comes and it opens our eyes. Because, you see, we can't be put right until our eyes are open to the situation. You are not likely to submit to an operation by a surgeon, are you, until you are quite convinced that there's something wrong with you? If a man came along to you and said, I'd like to operate on you, would you let him do it? Of course you wouldn't. The first thing is, you've got to be convinced of the diagnosis. You've got to know that you've got a growth or something, and that if it isn't taken out, well, you'll probably die. But once you're convinced of that, you say, carry on. I'll put up with the operation and all the pain, anything which will give me health. Now, the gospel does that. It, first of all, leads to conviction of sin. It calls us to repentance. It urges us to think and to face ourselves and to face the facts. 
It is a light that comes and illumines the whole of our being and it shows us things of which we were not aware before. Recovering of sight to the blind. What does it show us? Well, let me just note these things this evening. Here is the first thing. It shows us our appalling ignorance of ourselves. That's the last thing we realize, isn't it? Is that we are ignorant of ourselves. Even the Greek philosophers had at any rate discovered that. They said the greatest principle a man can ever discover in life in this world is this. Know thyself. That's the essence of wisdom. That you should know yourself. But oh, how difficult it is to know yourself. How can you come to know yourself when you're always defending yourself and always shielding yourself? You can know others. You see what's wrong with them. Yes, but when you do exactly the same thing, somehow it's rather different, isn't it? There is something to explain it when I do it, nothing when he does it. So I'm always defending myself. As Jeremiah puts it, the human heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? And the last man to know it is the man himself. But the gospel reveals to us the truth about ourselves. And what is that? Well, we've already been dealing with one aspect of that in one of these previous pictures uh, where we are told that Christ has come to preach deliverance to the captives. And we indicated under that heading that that means partly that we are all, by nature, the dupes and the slaves and the victims of the devil. We are captives, every one of us is born into this world, to the world and the flesh and the devil. If you like to say that you are not a slave to those three by nature, well, my friend, there's only one thing to say to you, and that is you're ignorant. You don't know yourself, or you're a deliberate liar. Slaves to practices and evil habits. Slaves to the thing to do and the round and the circle. Slaves to the whole outlook and mentality, ruled, governed, directed by newspapers, what the world is doing. That's the position of every one of us. And not only is it true of us as individuals, it's true of the whole world. This is the tragedy, it seems to me, of the modern times in which we live. What's the matter with the world? What's the matter with the international situation? Can you really explain it in terms of men or economics or politics or anything else? The thing the gospel reveals to us is this, that at the back of all those things which are simply the levers, as it were, is the hand of Satan, the God of this world, the enemy of God. Satan is ever an author of confusion and of discord and of trouble. All jealousy and envy and hatred and bitterness, all these things, they're brought into being by him. He started by being jealous of God and hating God. And he's 
induced men to do the same and he has divided us up amongst ourselves and the whole world thus under the power of the devil is warring and quarreling. Whence come wars among you, asks James, and answers his own question by saying, even of your own lusts that war within you. The whole world, you see, is governed in this way. We are all of us the slaves of the devil. In other words, one of the first things a man discovers about himself is this. That whereas always he thought in the past that he had an absolutely free will and that he did what he did because it was his entire absolute free will which was not influenced by anybody or anything, he awakens to the fact that he is not free, he is a slave. And that he's a slave to this extent that though he may want to get freedom from certain things because they hurt him, he can't stop it. A slave of the devil. It's a terrible thing to realize this. That when we thought we were so marvelous and wonderful, we are just being manipulated as pawns by the principle of evil that is behind the appearance of this world. It's a shocking thing to discover. But I don't stay with that, therefore I go on to the second way in which I'd like to put this. The second thing we discover about ourselves is what I must call our depravity. It isn't simply that we are governed by the devil, by Satan, but all oh, the depravity that is within us. Now, I read those portions from that epistle to the Ephesians at the beginning because there the great apostle puts the thing so plainly and so clearly. There was nothing more terrible about that ancient world, the first century, when the Son of God was in the world and when Paul preached than the appalling depravity of the peoples. They lived in sin and in darkness. Oh, there are some horrible descriptions of this very thing in different parts of the scriptures. If you want it all described absolutely perfectly, you've got it in the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, the second half of that. Let me just read some of it to you in order that you may see what I'm talking about. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Wherefore, God gave them up also to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. For this cause... God gave them up unto vile affections. That's what I mean by depravity. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves the recompense of their error which was meet. That's depravity. 
that's an exposure of men as a mass of corruption. As one who has sunk and fallen so low that he's perverted the very instincts which God gave him and which he gave to men at the beginning, unnatural, inordinate affections. Have you awakened to the fact, my friend, that that is true of you? Because it is. Have you felt what the modern psychologist calls the drives, the thrust, the force, the power of these things within you? The nature of men as the result of sin is like a seething cauldron. Oh, I'm not exaggerating. Not exaggerating at all. If you only face honestly the thoughts that you harbor and the imaginations with which you play, you'll know that I'm speaking the literal truth. And men and women are held in the grip of these things and they don't know it. They say, isn't life wonderful? Think of the thousands tonight in this city of London without going any further who are having what they call a good time. And what does a good time consist of? It consists of drink which knocks out your highest centers, your self-control, and allows these other things to come to the surface. You'll see it in their faces. Look at the things they're talking about. Look at the things they're doing. Look at the things they want to do. Look at the life of society. In every stratum, not only those who are called low, but the very highest, all this is absolutely true. That's depravity. But they're not aware of it, you see. They're blind. They say, it's all right, we're having a good time. Things are going well. But when Christ comes to a man, when this gospel flashes upon him, he suddenly awakens and sees it. He sees how he's using his faculties. He sees what a fool he is. It's true of intelligent men as well as men who are lacking in ability. Drugging themselves, drinking themselves to death, stimulating themselves because they feel their passions are weakening and they don't want to have an end to the life of passion, so they stimulate themselves and thereby kill themselves and you suddenly see a notice, died suddenly, unexpectedly, of course. They gloat in the depravity, they stimulate themselves to it, they talk to one another about it. They burst of it. The newspapers put it on the front page. It's said to be marvelous. It's wonderful. All these lusts, these exaggerations of the natural, as if these were the things that are real news and make life. The gospel opens our eyes to the awful, appalling depravity. Do you know what it is to hate yourself? Have you yet come to the point of saying, Oh, wretched men that I am, who shall deliver me? Are you aware of that within yourself that's ever dragging you down, though you may want to do good things, another law in your members, warring against the law of the mind, dragging you down to evil? Are you tired of it? Are you longing to get rid of it? It's the gospel that makes you feel that. 
It reveals a man to himself as he really is. And he's appalled at it. He wouldn't have believed it. He hadn't seen it. But the gospel opens our eyes to it. Recovery of sight to the blind. And then the next way I'd put it is this. I'm simply giving you headings. It also shows us what man was meant to be. Having shown us ourselves as we are, it shows us man as he was made in the image of God. It shows us Jesus Christ with his holiness and his purity. Little children ran to him. The hopeless creatures on earth, they all drew nigh unto him. There was something about him. They went to him. That's man. But we've never stopped to consider that. We'd gone on. We'd got our own ideas. But Christ has come to open our eyes and to give us to see what man was meant to be. But the world isn't interested in that. It's got these other ideas. But here comes light and knowledge and instruction, which is oh so different. Recovery of sight to the blind. Man was not meant to be as he is. Man was made the Lord of creation. Was made for communion with God was made pure and clean and upright, was meant to enjoy life and to be in a state of bliss. The gospel brings us to see that and we begin to say, but I'm not that, I've never been that, I ought to be that. That's how it opens our blind eyes. It flashes its light upon the hidden, the dark things and then shows us the pattern and the standard. But for me to hurry on, the gospel not only opens our eyes with regard to ourselves, it opens our eyes with regard to God and with respect to his holy law and with respect to his purposes with regard to men. Isn't it true to say that the vast majority of people today are living exactly as if there were no God at all? They may say, if you ask them, oh yes, I believe in God, but practically they're atheists. God doesn't enter into their calculations. Their life is not based upon the supposition that there is a God. God is forgotten. He's just ignored altogether. And they go on living, I say, as if there wasn't a God. Ah, but when Christ comes with his light and recovering of sight to the blind, he opens our eyes and we are conscious of God. It's the great message of the Bible, God. It was God who made the world. It was God who made the heavens and the earth. It's God who's brought everything into being. It's God who sustains everything that is. And God is looking down upon the world still. And God knows all about us. God is spirit, which means that he's everywhere. He's not localized. God hasn't a body. God is spirit. He's everywhere at the same time. There is no limit to him. There is no localizing. He sees all. He knows all. 
All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And it's a momentous thing, this, to discover suddenly that there is God whom I have not thought of at all and whom I have never reckoned with and whom I haven't considered. But suddenly my eyes are open to the greatness and the majesty and the might and the glory of God. And then the holiness of God. God in his utter absolute purity. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. These are the things to which the gospel opens our eyes. You know, you've got it all for me to use the obvious illustration. It's all there in the fourth chapter of John's gospel in the dealings of our blessed Lord with the so-called woman of Samaria. You remember the story, don't you, how the woman came and began to argue with our Lord about this and that, the well, and to whom it belonged, and the difference between Jews and Samaritans, and all the questions that were always brought up whenever a Jew and a Samaritan met, and she argued and enjoyed it. Suddenly our Lord spoke to her and looked at her and pulled her up and said, Woman, go fetch thy husband and come hither. And the woman looked at him and said, I haven't a husband. And the Lord said to her, You're quite right in saying that you haven't a husband. You've had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. He suddenly makes the woman face herself and look at the life she was living and the, the appalling sin of it. He fixes her attention on that, and then he talks to her about God. Her idea of God was a sort of local idea. She said, I know that you Jews say that one should worship in Jerusalem, but we've always said that you worship in this mountain. You, you say there, we say here. And our Lord said to her, look here, woman, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Neither in this mountain nor yet in Jerusalem. It's an attitude of heart and of spirit. It is coming into the presence of God. You haven't realized what God is. You worship. You know not what. We know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. That's how he spoke to her, you remember. Now he goes on speaking like that. It's a tremendous discovery that we make when we suddenly awaken to the realization that that great and eternal and holy God is always looking on us and knows our every action, our every thought, our every imagination, that all things, to use the pictures of this book, are recorded in his ledgers, in his books, and that a day is coming when the books will be opened. Recovery of sight to the blind. What's the matter with the world? The trouble with the world is it's forgotten God. It doesn't see him. The clouds have come, the clouds of sin, and man has forgotten God. And there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. It's the first thing we need to have our eyes open to God. But come, the next thing that obviously follows is this. 
He then opens our eyes to the consequences of our position in the light of these two great truths. There is God in his holiness. God is light and eternal light and in him is no darkness at all. And here is men, a mass of corruption, in sin, a rebel, guilty before God. It's not surprising that the message of John the Baptist was a message which told people to flee from the wrath to come. And Jesus Christ opens our eyes to the wrath to come. What do you mean by that, says someone? I didn't know that anybody still believed in that. Well, that is what the Son of God says. There is a wrath to come. What is it? Well, it's something like this. History is not everlasting. History is something that is confined to time. There was a beginning. There will be an end. You see, the world is absolutely blind to that this evening, isn't it? The world does not realize that the whole story of humanity is moving on to an inevitable certain climax. We somehow have got the idea, all of us, haven't we, that time is endless. That the world was and the world will be and that things will always go on. But my dear friend, Jesus Christ says they will not. It's a process. And as there was a beginning, there will be an end. There is to be a climax to humanity and to history. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, said that he would come back again into this world, that he would be seen riding on the clouds of heaven surrounded by the holy angels, and he said he would come back to judge the world. He speaks about it repeatedly. Read it for yourselves. You'll find it in the 21st chapter of Luke's Gospel. You'll find it in the 13th of Mark. You'll find it in chapters 24 and 25 of the Gospel according to St. Matthew. You'll find it everywhere. Our Lord was always speaking about this. This judgment that he was going to bring. He's only going away for a while, he says. He's coming back and he's going to wind up history and the the whole world will be judged in righteousness by him. That's his message. He opens our eyes to that. The world is a temporary world. It's only on a lease. And the end is coming. I don't know when. Nobody else knows when. The great thing is that we should awaken to the fact that there is to be an end. How do you realize that about the world? The world that seems to be so solid, doesn't it? My dear friends, as our cities were bombed and blasted in the last war, and as they'll be bombed and blasted much more in the next war, believe me that all that is as nothing in comparison with the day which is coming when the elements shall melt with fervent heat. And the whole world shall be purged of evil and sin. And there shall be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Are your eyes open to that? 
You are the citizen of a world that is under judgment and that is doomed. The kingdoms of this world are passing away and all that belongs to them. But you know, it not only opens our eyes to that general judgment, it opens our eyes to the personal judgment. The trouble with us all is that we don't realize this. But as certainly as I am standing in this pulpit at this moment, every one of us will have to appear before God in judgment. The Lord Jesus Christ put it in his picture, in his story of two men, Dives the rich man and Lazarus the beggar. They both lived in the same world. The rich man in his palace, Lazarus lying at the very gate, and the dogs came and licked his wounds. But you see, though the difference was so great, the fact is that the two men had to die and did die. And they both went on to the life that is beyond the veil. Lazarus went to a place called Abram's bosom. Dives, the rich men, went to a place called hell, where, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, he was in agony, in torment. And he sees Lazarus in Abram's bosom and pleads of him to come down and to cool him in that flame. But he's told that it cannot happen, that a great gulf is fixed, and that there'll never be any passage from one to the other. Now, this isn't my talk. This isn't my idea. These words were spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is exactly what he tells us. It is to that that he opens our eyes. You know, it's almost impossible to realize it as you're sitting in Westminster Chapel at this moment, isn't it? But, my dear friend, I'm sent to this pulpit just to remind you of the things that the world and the flesh and the devil are deliberately keeping from you. Here it is. You are sitting in this chapel now. But as certainly as you are sitting in this chapel now, you and I have got to die. Can't be evaded or avoided. Now there is one thing I confess I cannot understand. And that is the people who object to being reminded like this Sunday by Sunday that they've got to die. I should have thought that I'm your greatest friend and your greatest benefactor by reminding you of that fact. Because you've got to die and because once you have died, your eternal future is already determined and you cannot change it. Now it's no use talking to me about a second chance. You show me where you find it in the scriptures. It's no use saying, ah, but the love of God can't do that. Jesus Christ said that there is a gulf fixed and that there is no passage from hell to heaven. None at all. There is nothing about purgatory in the scriptures. Nothing. What he says is this, that a man determines his eternal destiny in this world and in this life. 
And that if we die in our sins, if we die in a condition estranged from God, there is nothing awaiting us but an eternity of misery and wretchedness, torment and unhappiness. It's Christ who opens our eyes to that. Have you ever faced it? Have you ever thought of it? Have you sat down and said, now, I agree with this, I have got to die. Very well, that's an absolute. There's no need to argue there. It's got to happen. What after? Have you faced that? Have you thought about yourself a hundred years from tonight? Not one of us will be here, but we'll be somewhere. Your soul, your spirit will be there somewhere. It'll be beyond, beyond the veil. The people here then, if there's still time, they won't know us. They won't have heard of us probably. But you and I will still be existing. And where will you be existing? According to the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll either be in heaven or else you'll be in hell. The business of the gospel is to open our eyes to things like this. You don't get that in the newspapers, do you? You don't get that in the journals. You don't get that on the cinema. You don't get that anywhere. Everybody's trying to stop thinking about this. Don't, don't know this. Come along. We get rid of the dead as quickly as we can. We burn their bodies. Off we go. Now then, let's forget it all. No use looking about these things, we say. Let's go on. Let's keep on and avoid thinking. But my dear friend, what's the point of avoiding thinking? You can't avoid the facts. You can't avoid the destiny. He, open our, he opens our eyes to the immortality of our being and to the fact that we shall go on existing to all eternity in one or the other of these two states. But thank God he doesn't leave it at that, otherwise we'd all be doomed and damned and hopeless. He opens our eyes to the fact that there is a way of deliverance, a way of escape, a way of salvation. It's incredible, isn't it? But it's a fact. There is the possibility that the mass of corruption that you are can nevertheless see God and spend eternity in his holy presence. That's why the gospel is good news. Though we are all of us by nature what we've seen ourselves to be, as the scriptures describe us, it is possible for us to spend eternity beyond death and the grave in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, in glory. He opens our eyes to that, and he does so by opening our eyes to himself. He says, Come unto me. Come unto me. All ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I came not to call the righteous, he says, but sinners to repentance. 
Look at him and he will tell you. He'll open your eyes to the most astounding thing you'll ever see or you'll ever hear. That though we are what we are and God is what he is, God has so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What a fact. What a truth. What a vision. My friend, has he opened your eyes? Have you seen it? Has he opened your eyes to himself? Have you seen that Christ has made himself responsible for all your sins and has borne their punishment and that God is ready to forgive you all? Have you seen that? Have you seen likewise that he will give you his own nature? He'll give you his own life. He'll put a principle into you that's like himself. And he will see that it will grow by the operation of the Holy Spirit. Until at long last, when you die, he'll take you by the hand and present you faultless in the presence of God. And you and I shall be absolutely free from sin. Do you know, even our bodies will be free from sin. When he comes, says Paul, he will change this our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the mighty working, whereby he is able to subdue even all things to himself. My spirit cleansed, my body cleansed, Disease will go, deformities will go, decay will go. I shall have a spiritual body. I'll be an entirely new and perfect man and enjoy my eternity in the presence of God and his only begotten beloved Son. Recovering of sight to the blind. Oh, my dear friend, have your eyes been opened to the truth, to the facts? About yourself. Forget everybody else. You yourself, here now, not here in a hundred years, but still existing. Where? It became a joke, didn't it? People used to joke about the way the old preachers used to ask, where will you spend eternity? I think it's the greatest and the most important question we can ever consider. You are going to spend eternity somewhere. Where? If you want to spend it with God, and in glory and in bliss. Just as you are, fly to Jesus Christ. Believe him when he tells you that he came into the world to die for you and for your sins and to give you this new nature that will fit you to stand before and to see God. Amen.